Um, we are in the middle of a series here. Um, it's actually kind of relatively early still. This is our seventh week. As we talk about how it's all about Jesus, we've been tracking and, and, and thinking and talking ultimately about how everything in the Bible is about Jesus. Everything that, whether it says his name or not, it's all about Jesus, as we sang in that first song. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus, everything in the Old Testament is reflecting the life of Christ, but it's ultimately all about Jesus. The first uh, few weeks we spent a lot of time in the early pages of Genesis to talk about how the world was originally meant to be, the world as God created. And as we look at the world before sin enters, we see that this is the way life was supposed to be. This is the life that God intended for us to live, a life where we're living for the kingdom of God, a life where um, we're making much of Jesus, a life where he is everything, where we see in each other the image of God and we treat one another like that. A life where under the rule and the reign of God, we are together in fellowship and in community. We love one another and we point one another to the beauty of Christ. But last week we saw one fine day when sin entered the world, everything was changed. And everything that was good became broken and fallen and messed up. And everything that was bright and sunny and joyful became dark and cold and gloomy. When sin entered the world, immediately a trigger effect happened, a ripple effect happened throughout the world that left everything unrecognizable when you compare it to the world that God created. There was alienation between a human being within himself or herself. So we feel ashamed about ourselves, naked and ashamed. There was alienation between us and God, right? We're banished from the garden, no longer walking in fellowship with God. We found alienation between, uh, with, with ourselves and with each other, right? Relationships become damaged. There's alienation between us and creation, the ground that we labor with, right? The, the nature no longer lives in cooperation, honoring um, human beings as kings over, kings over all of creation. There was sorrow and pain, and ultimately, the ultimate product of sin entering the world was death. And every single one of us has to face death at one point or another. So we saw all that happening in, in just one simple act. Through one man's sin, the world became broken. Right? Today, we're going to pick up on that and see how quickly the spiral degenerates and escalates downward by looking at the first family. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 4 and see how quickly things go from bad to worse. And as you turn there, I want to remind you that at the end of, at the end of chapter 3, in the middle of chapter 3, we saw in the midst of all of this darkness and brokenness, there was a promise that God gave in Genesis 3.15. Talking to the serpent who represented Satan, he said, one day the seed of a woman is going to come. Right? Someone born of a woman is going to come. And he's going to be the savior of the world. You're going to strike his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And we saw that that person would be Jesus. We see immediately two kinds of people and two kinds of people alone in this world. There are people who live in the line of the serpent. Right? And there are people who live in the line of the woman. Okay? Those who are for Satan or those who are for God. Anyone who's not for God is living in the line of Satan. That's what he's saying. There's only two kinds of people. There's no middle ground. And throughout the word of God, you see that. Jesus says, either you're for me or you're against me. You're a disciple or you're not. Either you gather or you scatter. There's only two kinds of people. And as he reiterates that in Genesis 3.15, we're going to pick up in Genesis chapter 4. We're going to read most of the chapter. We're going to read in bits and pieces. Let's start verses 1 through 5 and see how this all begins to play out. This is God's word. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I've brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain, uh, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. And we're going to pause for a second here. Let me give you the first thought here. The first thought, I think this is relevant to all of us. And we're going to just kind of see its relevance here. The first thought is as God is interested more in our hearts than in our gifts. Okay, God is more interested in our hearts 
than in our gifts. We see in verses 1 and 2, Adam and Eve, okay, before up until this point in time, all we've known is Adam and Eve, they do what God told them to do. They're fruitful and they multiply. And pow, a child comes out. Cain comes out. This is what it says. She said, with the help of the Lord, I've brought forth a man. Literally what she's saying. Here's what she's saying. There's a defiant and almost a prideful spirit within her. Why? Because she created this massive mess. Her and her husband created this massive mess. The world as they know it is completely changed. It's darkness. And she says, you know what? I blew it. Right? We blew it. We messed everything up. But in Genesis 3.15, God promised that someone from me is going to come and is going to fix the mess that I made. He's going to change everything. He's going to make it better. And so that language is being repeated in chapter 4, verse 1. She, it says, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. But there's a sense of in which I made a mess, but here this child that comes from me is going to be the one to fix it. All right? There's some places, a lot of commentators even say, it says, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. There are a lot of commentaries that say, with the help, I have brought forth a man, comma, the Lord. She's saying, this is the Lord coming from me. Ultimately, what she's saying, this child, Cain, she believes he's going to be the one who's going to fix the mess that she's made. You know parents like that? They just made a big mess of their lives. And then they have this child and they say, you know what? This child is going to fix everything. And all of their hopes and all of their dreams are pinned on that child. You know what happens to that child? They begin to feel the weight of the world on their shoulders. And if they're successful, then they're going to feel that they're God's gift to the world. Begin to feel the sense of entitlement, like the world owes me something. See, maybe that's the way it was with some of us. Uh, your parents said, you know what? I, left, I couldn't live out my dreams. My world got jacked up when I left the motherland, whatever that mother country is. I left everything behind. I couldn't live in my dreams. So here, you've got to live in your dreams. And they make it all about you. So you've got to be successful in a way that I couldn't do it. Now, you've got to make it big. You've got to be rich. You've got to be famous. You've got to make it, make it big in this world because I could never do that. And they put all this pressure on you, and you grow up thinking that the world is all about you. Right, this is damaging parenting here. Because look at what she says about, says about Abel. Verse 2, later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Right, that's it. Doesn't say anything about Abel. He's just kind of an afterthought. There was no birth announcements for him, no baby shower, no sprinkle even, nothing. Just, well, there's Abel. In fact, his name means vapor. That's it. He's not, not much of a big deal. It's, just, it's Cain. All of their hopes and dreams are put on Cain because he, in their mind, is the golden child. He's going to fix everything. He is the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. They grow up. Abel kept flocks, verse 2. Cain worked the soil. Verse 3 talks about the first time they brought worship or talks about the pattern of worship. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked on with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. What's happening here? They're both, they, they've got the right idea. They understand that when it comes to worship, the first thing that we have to understand is that we come to offer something to God. We come to worship, our first response is not, I need to get something from God. So I need to give something to God. All throughout, when you read the Old Testament, read the New Testament worship, it's all about we bring the sacrifice of praise. We bring our lives as a living sacrifice. It's about me giving myself to God before it is about me getting all this stuff from God. And they understood this at the outset. Isn't that why we sing? Um, with, this, with, this, uh, with my heart open wide from the depths, from the heights, I will bring a sacrifice. Right? This is the language of worship. We come to God, we bring worship to God. What is our attitude as we come to worship today? And as we come to worship God, have we come to give something to the Lord? And I'm not just talking about our offerings, our financial gifts, which are obviously a part of it. But as we've come to worship God, have we really, is it about the heart of giving to the Lord God? Or is it about what I can get from it? 
See, Cain and Abel understood that they're not consumers in worship. They're not coming to worship to offer God a sacrifice to say, God, please me now. They're saying, God, you are worthy. Worthy worship comes from worth-ship, declaring the worth of God. And so I bring my life before you, God. This is what worship is. It's not about what can you do for me, God. That's not the first thing. If our attitude when we come to worship, I think a lot of times our attitude is as if we're coming to a concert. I don't like the songs that we're singing. Or, you know what, um, they didn't have a bass player today, so worship wasn't very good. Or we come to critique these things. We come to critique the sermon. Some of us, maybe we think we're the sermonator. I'm going to come and I'm going to kill that sermon. I'm going to destroy it because he's not saying things that I like to hear. We have to have a, 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 a mind that's ready to listen to. And if I'm saying something that's not right, to be able to counteract that with the word of God. But our first response, it's about the attitude of our hearts. What kind of an attitude do we bring? David, King David would later say, I will not bring worship to the Lord my God, which costs me nothing. So what is the cost of our worship today? Have we come to give to the Lord God? Have we come to offer our offering of worship to the Lord God? It's not first and foremost about God, I've come, now bless me, bless me, bless me. That's good. We need to do that. But it has to move beyond that to say, first of all, God, take me, take me, take me. Take all of me that I might be, I might be an act of worship. See, the issue with Cain, it didn't say that in verse 4, the Lord looked with favor on Abel's offering. It says looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but he did not look with favor on Cain and his offering. Why? He's saying you cannot separate the worshiper from the gift. You could give a great gift, but if your heart is not in it, then God will not look with favor on that offering. That's what God is saying. If you're, God is more concerned about what's in our hearts than what's in our hands when we come to worship. And he's a whole lot more concerned. If we don't have the heart, the best offering that you give to the Lord God is not going to be able to make up for a heart that lacks a spirit of worship within us. Cain brought some of the fruits. Abel brought fat portions from the firstborn. Does Abel brought the very best that he had to give to God in worship. That God, here's my best, the best part of my life. I'm giving all that to you. Cain's just bringing whatever he can give. Abel comes to bring everything, a wholehearted worship. This is the very best of the first parts of my offering. God, I give that to you. Cain is giving his leftovers. Abel has come preparing his gift, thinking about God, worshiping, seeking the face of God, and then offering that up to the Lord God on Sunday or in, on the day of worship. Cain is just coming with whatever he has to give, not really thinking about it, saying, oh, I got to put something together. Here it is. And throwing it into his, his, his box of worship. What kind of a gift are we bringing? What kind of a heart are we bringing to the Lord God in worship? And does God look with favor on the offering and on the giver of that offering this morning? I have mentioned often how um, when I was in college, I had a, a pet toad named Gregory, and I've mentioned that um, his food of choice would be grasshoppers, and we would go to um, the store and we would buy a bag of, of crickets, I'm sorry, crickets for a dollar, about 15 of them for a dollar. And I would get that bag of crickets, and they're always alive, obviously, and they're jumping around, and I would try and count each of them to make sure that um, I didn't get gypped, right? 15 for a dollar. I just want to make sure I was kind of cheap in the time making sure that they were all good and alive because Gregory only ate crickets that were alive. He didn't eat crickets that were dead. And so in that bag of 15 crickets, if 13 of them were alive and two of them were dead, I would get so upset. Like, how dare, I can't give these two dead crickets to my toad Gregory. He won't eat that stuff. I'm getting gypped. I'm paying a dollar for 13, not 15. You need to... I was thinking to myself, I was never brave enough to tell them to return these two. But I would say, I would think in my mind, how, how can you give me two dead crickets? I can't offer these to my toad because they're dead offerings. And I wonder, as we come before the Lord God, are we bringing dead crickets 
before the Lord God. If I wouldn't even give these to my toad, would I dare give that kind of a worship to the God of endless worth? What kind of an offering are we bringing to God as we come into his house? We don't read much more into it here, but Hebrews 11.4 tells us the reason why Cain's offering was unacceptable compared to Abel's was because Abel's was offered in faith. 1 John chapter 2 also tells us that Cain, the problem with Cain's offering was that he was jealous of his brother Abel. It had nothing to do with how much he gave or with what it looked like. And it had everything to do with the heart of worship. That when Cain came, he wasn't looking at God. He was looking at what he was giving and all that it cost. He wasn't looking at God. He was looking at the people around him and was jealous of what they had and what they were giving and what they were doing instead of looking at God and his worth. You see, that's, that's what worship is about. It's not about looking at each other and comparing our hearts with each other's hearts. It's about looking up to God. God saying, what is the offering that you're bringing to me? See, the first thing that we see, that God's a whole lot more concerned with our heart than he is about our gifts, than he is about our offerings. The second thing we're going to, it's going to, again, it's going to spiral downward. Here's the second thing. Small sins can quickly become big sins. Okay, small sins can quickly become big sins. Verse 6, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. See, verse 6, God offers a tremendous gift to Cain. Verse 4 tells us Cain was very angry. His face was downcast. So God says to him, why are you angry? Why is your face looking like that? Again, as it was in Genesis chapter 3, God asked this question not for the sake of him getting information from Cain. He knows all that stuff. He asked this question in order that Cain might own that sin and might turn back to God. You know, a lot of times, isn't it true that we despise the very questions that could lead to life in our hearts? Don't we despise when people ask us questions that call out sin within our lives? When people say, hey, how are you doing with that? How are you doing with that struggle? I just kind of want to walk away from that. When a group of people are sharing about the issues that they've got, about the accountability that they need, and you know that you're struggling with that, and they look at you and they say, hey, what about you? You just want to go and, and, and turn away from that question. You just want to hide. It's like the surgeon's scalpel that we talk about. It may cause pain for a moment, but it's what ultimately leads to life. But we have a way of avoiding these kinds of questions. We have a way of running away from these kinds of questions because it gets a little bit too close to home. That's why when a sermon calls us out on certain sinful behaviors, we might be moved in our hearts. We go home and we don't want to do anything about it. Or we say, you know what? And we begin to think about, he's not talking about me. He's talking about somebody else. Oh, I really wish that my husband was here. I really wish my wife was here. I really wish that my parents could listen to this. But we avoid letting it get too close to us. Again, Tim Keller says, the sins that we're most defensive about are the sins that are most destructive to our soul. And God is calling Abel out. He's saying, look, check, Abel, you're, you're, you're about to go down a really bad path right now. And you need to check your heart right now. Why are you like this? What's going on inside of your heart? Here's the reality. Every time our relationship with God is off, it's going to affect our relationship with other people. And so God is saying, hey, Cain, you need to look at this. What's going on inside of your heart right now? Because if you don't deal with this, then it's going to come back and it's going to get you. Here's the nature of sin. It says, if you do what is right, 
If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Do you know that sin desires to kill you? Sin doesn't stay the same way. You've got like a five-pound ball of sin in your life. You're playing with it right now. It's your anger issue. It's your lust issue. It's your gossip issue. It's the fact that you can't stand your parents. It's the fact that you've got problems with authority. It's the fact that you're abusive. Whatever it might be, you've got this five-pound ball of sin, and you think, I'm just going to manage it. But look at what it says about sin. It desires to kill you. It desires to have you. It, you need to master it, or it's going to master you. Either you kill sin, or sin is going to kill you. You can't play with it. It doesn't remain the same size. It only grows. It only escalates. It only blows up. Right, you mess around with a little bit of this, it's going to blow up in your face. And it's going to... Have you ever noticed how much pain sin causes to those who you're closest to? You can't manage this stuff. You need to get rid of it or it's going to get rid of you. Or it's going to get rid of your brother. It's going to get rid of somebody that you love. What is that sin in your life that you keep ignoring that God keeps on poking on, uh, in your heart about? Sticks a finger in there and you, you, you've heard it time and time again because your parents have said it to you. Because your friends have said it to you. Because your spouse is whoever has kept on saying it to you. You hear it all the time in sermons. And you, you just you have a, a, a nice way of just kind of pushing it aside and say he's talking about somebody else. It's not talking to me. Not talk, it's not talking about me. It's not dealing with my sin. That's about someone else. You have this way of pushing that sin aside. The sin that you're most defensive about is the sin that's most destructive. If you don't deal with this, it's going to kill you. Because that's the nature of sin. It's not a little plaything that you, that you mess around. There's a guy named Antoine Yates. He lived in Harlem, lived in the housing projects of Harlem. He had a 400-pound Bengal tiger in his house with him. He had an alligator with him also. And how smart is that? So one day, this tiger bit off, almost ripped off his arm. So he had to call the police. He called 911 and said a pit bull bit him. And so they go in, the police go in, they find, wow, what do you know? I found a 400-pound Bengal tiger and alligator living here. They confiscate. He's like, no, don't take it away. Don't take it away. And they interviewed him afterwards. He says, I'm heartbroken. I'm devastated. That was my friend. That was my best. That was my only friend. I'm thinking to myself, what an idiot. Like, how lame are you? First of all, I mean, I would never say this to a person living in Harlem, let alone a person who has a 400-pound Bengal tiger as his friend. But still, I'm thinking this in my mind. What kind of an idiot do you have to be to have your arm almost ripped off and then to say, oh, I'm so heartbroken that this is gone. But how many times is that our relationship with sin? It almost ruins our lives. It almost ruins the people that are near to us. And yet we coddle it and we play with it. And we say, you know what, just, I'll just mess around with it a little bit. It's okay. All right. Just a little bit of gossip. I know people get hurt by it. It's just a little bit, though. I can manage it. After all, I tell people it's just a prayer request. That's all it is. After all, they ask me about it anyway. Just a little bit of lust. That's it. That's all it is. I know it's, maybe it's, it's rewiring my brain and causing me to look at people differently, but it's just a little bit. It's going to cause me to never be able to have proper sexual relations with my spouse, but just a, just a small thing. No big deal. Sin desires to master you, it says. It desires to kill you. It's not a little toy to play with. You don't get rid of it, it's going to get rid of you. And so here's how, here's how Cain responds. God's poking, prodding, telling him, you've got to get rid of this sin before it kills you. And so he says in verse 8, Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. God is speaking to Cain's heart. Let go of this sin. Deal with this sin. Come back to me. He walks away from God. You see how the small sin quickly escalates into a big sin. The number seven is highly significant in the Bible. It means completion, perfection. Seven times in verses 1 through 16, it mentions the name Abel. Fourteen times it mentions the name Cain. 
verses 1 through 11, seven times it mentions the word brother as if we had forgotten. Why? Because he wants to make crystal clear to us that the person that he has just murdered is not an enemy. He's not a friend. He's not a stranger. He's not an acquaintance. This is his blood. This is his brother. Very brother. Grew up together playing with, laughing together, studying together, playing together, playing catch together, talking about girls they like together, messing around, running through the hills, running through the forest, running through the whatever it is that they're doing. Just all kinds of the laughter, the tears, the joys, the sleepovers, playing, telling ghost stories to each other. Takes him out in the wilderness. Why in the wilderness? Because there's nobody there. Premeditated murder. Because when our relationship with God is off, our relationship with people is never going to work out. It's always that way. It's always this first, vertical, and then this. You having a hard time with people? Having a hard time getting along with other people? It's because your relationship with God is off. And he's understanding in this moment. God is poking and prodding, but he says, you know what? I don't want that. I don't want the scalpel that's going to fix me of my sin. I'm going to hold on to my sin like that 400-pound Bengal tiger. And again, failing to realize the blindness of it all, how our sin most deeply affects the people who are closest to us. How our inability to corral these sinful desires is wreaking havoc in our families. It's destroying the people that we love, destroying the people we're called to care for, destroying the people that we're called to shepherd and to love and to lead and to teach and to mentor and to guide and disciple, destroying the very fabric of these relationships because we cannot control, because we think we can just play with and be all right hanging out with these sins in our lives. And for most of us, we know what these sins are because God has constantly been telling us and poking at these things in our hearts. Verse 9, the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you're under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. One more time, God says, where's your brother? And with straight up defiance, am I my brother's keeper? I don't know where he is. To the all-knowing, all-seeing, all-perceiving God, says, I don't know where he is. But countless times God's given him the opportunity to repent, to turn away from that sin. And he hardens his heart and he refuses. And every indication in this passage, verse 11 says, you're under a curse linking Cain with the line of the serpent. The unregenerate, those who don't have faith, in God. This is where he is. And God banishes him. In, in the Bible, the direction of east means you're going further and further away from God. Adam and Eve were banished east of Eden, away from the presence of God. Verse 13 says, or verse 13, um, verse 12, you'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. Uh, he settled in, we'll see this later, in the land of Nod, which means wandering, which is even further east going further and further and further and further away from the presence of God. And you think this sin is localized to just your life. It affects all these people. And then generation after generation, as it talks about his genealogy, again, the number seven significant, the seventh person from Adam in the line of Cain was a man named Lamech. It says in verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 
77 times. This is how the degeneration trickles into the next generations. Your sin necessarily affects other people, but it affects generations yet unseen, yet unborn. And just five generations after Cain, this man Lamech rises up. First of all, he marries two women, which is a violation of what God says in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2. Right, this, this spiraling downward into sin. And then says this young guy, right, he, how, how cool are you, Lamech? He's like 30 years old or 40 years, however old he is. He's a bad man. He thinks he's so cool. Right, this teenager kicked me in the shin. So I took a knife and I chopped off his head. I'm a bad man. And he's boasting about it, gloating about it, writing songs about his violence and about all the, oh, these great men that he is, that he killed a helpless, defenseless teenager. See, small sins very quickly degenerate, becoming big sins. You need to deal with sin. That sin is going to deal with you. You need to kill sin or sin is going to kill you. The last thing that we see. Even in the midst of great sin, God's grace still abounds. Verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land and I'll be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found them would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. See, here's what Cain is saying. He just did all this bad stuff so for the first time, right? He's beginning to recognize the gravity of what happened. But he's not repenting of his sin here. Right? God calls him out. But listen to what he says. My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land. He didn't say my sin is more than I can bear. He says my punishment is more than I can bear. Here's how you know a person is not repentant. They look at their, their punishment and they look at what they did and they say, this is too much. Right? This is too much. I don't deserve this. And he begins to play this victim card. The unrepentant. A person who is repentant looks at their sin, they look at their punishment and they realize that the punishment, I deserve this. I deserve everything that I have coming to me. Because I am a hell-deserving, wrath-deserving, all of these bad things that ever could happen to me, I deserve that because of my sin. Yeah, people ought to leave me. People ought to reject me. People ought to scorn me. People ought to shun me because my sin is so awful. If they really knew everything about me, then they wouldn't, be, they wouldn't want to be in relationship with me. But he doesn't say that. He says, my punishment is too much. I don't deserve this. And yet, even in the midst of that stubbornness, so he doesn't even mention his brother Abel. Look how many times he says in verse 13, my punishment more than I can bear. You're driving me from the land. I will be hidden. I will be a wanderer. Whoever finds me will kill me seven times in just, in just one sentence, two sentences. It's all about him. Selfish son of an Adam and Eve. It's all about him. No, just complete hardness of heart. Doesn't recognize the pain and the brokenness that he's caused to other people. They, imagine him going to, Mom, Dad, you seen Abel? <laughs> What's he going to say? And yet even in the midst of that filth, excuse of a human being, verse 15, but the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. The Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. I don't know what kind of a mark it was, but for what a, anyone who saw him would not kill him or they would know that they would suffer vengeance seven times over. Why was God so kind to him? Because God still 
giving him an opportunity to repent. Because God still loves him. Even in the midst of his sin. Even in the midst of bloody murder. Even in the midst of him abusing his brother like that. He still loves him. It says, Cain, you can still repent. Romans 2, 4 says, it's God's kindness that drives us to repentance. Second Peter 3, 9. God is not slow, as some of you think slowness is, but God is patient because he does not desire anyone to perish, but that all would come to repentance. The reason why you've gotten away with sin for so long Because God's being patient with you. Because God wants to save you. Because he wants to save your family. He wants to save your friends. He wants to bring you to a place of repentance. That which Cain did not do. Says the last word spoken over Cain's life. Says your brother's blood cries out to me. From the ground. Where do innocent, helpless victims go when there's no one else around? In the wilderness, when no one else can hear your cries, to whom do you cry? Who hears those inaudible cries? It's God Himself who hears the cries of the innocent. He's the one who hears the cries of the innocent sufferers. I I talk with man, how many people I talk to each week who are broken over their sin and need help over their sin. But just invariably, I don't know how many percent, it always goes back, it always goes back to, I am just devastated at how this sin has affected my family. How this sin is affecting people that I care for. It always goes back to that place because no human being is an island in and of themselves. When one person sins, other people are necessarily affected by it. Blood cries out. I, I was talking with someone this week. They say as they hear their parents fighting. As they hear fighting from the other room. Hearing all of this stuff going on. The brokenness that it causes these young. Who hears the cries of these children when their parents are fighting? And in their sin, they don't hear those cries. Who hears those cries? God hears the cries of these innocent victims suffering. Needlessly because of the sins of other people. It's God who hears the cries of the unjust sufferers of genocide, of violence, of harm, of abortion. He hears the cries rising up. And what are those cries saying? It's a cry for justice. It's a cry for justice. Have vengeance. Avenge my blood. Do something, God. Don't let my blood be shed in vain. Do something about them. Do something about them. And Abel's blood cries out, Avenge my brother Cain. I, don't, I didn't deserve this. What did I do to deserve? Avenge my brother. And the blood of innocent victims as it rises up to God cries out justice. Give them what they deserve. He gave every opportunity to Cain for him to repent. But he did not. Which is why in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, tells us to learn the lesson of Cain. Because Cain did not repent. Vengeance, revenge, justice spoken over his heart. But he says, listen, if you repent, Hebrews 12, 24 says that we will come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Saying even though Cain didn't repent for his sin, the blood of Abel cries out for justice and vengeance. But he says, if you repent, and if I repent, then God will take us to another pool of blood where another innocent victim was brutally murdered by older brothers who thought they were doing what's right because they were not accepted by God. Because there's another pool of blood. If you repent, 
That blood doesn't cry out justice. It cries out mercy. It cries out forgiveness. It cries out grace. See, the seventh from the line of Cain and the seed of the serpent was Lamech. The seventh in the other line, in the line of Abel, says in verse 25, Adam and Eve, here they are. Cain thought he was going to be the one. He obviously wasn't the one. Thought Abel would be the one. He's dead. Who's it going to be? Verse 25, Adam lay with his wife again, gave birth to a son named Seth. And God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son and he named him Enosh. That time, men begin to call on the name of the Lord. The line of Cain the serpent, rejecting God, the line of Seth, calls on the name of the Lord. And the seventh one from that line, a man named Enoch, and it says, Enoch, the only thing it says about him, that he walked with God. The truest, clearest demonstration that you're a child of God. That you walk with God. You call on the name of God when you sin. And some of us are in here, and you have not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ. We were all at one point in the line of Cain. And the blood that cries out, blood of people that we've hurt, says avenge them, punish them. That's all of us. But if you've yet to put your faith in Christ, right, today right, he can take you to another pool of blood where your life can be changed and you can stop the destruction, the devastation that you're causing to people who you care so much about. And for those of us who have put our faith in Christ, our sin still continues to Disrupt our relationships if we don't keep it in check, if we don't watch these things. Because you need to call on the Lord God and deal with sin before sin deals with you so that once again you too can walk with God. There's only two ways to live. That we call on God or we ignore him. Hope is here. Hope is held out. Because would you put your faith in the God who's stronger than all of your sin? Let's pray together. Let's take a moment to pray just on our own as we respond to God's word. Prayer is nothing more than talking to God. In a moment, I'm going to give an invitation for us, for those of us who want to put our faith in Christ for the first time. And I'll give another invitation for those who want to trust God and come back to him, find strength over our sin as a way of recommitting our hearts. But let's take a moment right now as we respond to the word of God. All of us are in desperate need of help. We can't live this life on our own, no matter how self-sufficient we think we are. As a Christian or as a non-Christian, we need help. We need a Savior. Let's just pray to the Lord for a few moments. What are the sins? What is a sin in your life that God's even now speaking to you about? Will you take steps to deal with that? It's getting accountability. Get that. If it's buying something that's going to help you to overcome it, then, then buy it. If it's writing a note on your hand and getting it in your head that you can't, you can't do these things. The Spirit of God is here, ready to empower and strengthen us. We can be changed. Let's pray for, let's talk to God for a couple moments. Then I'm going to give an invitation if there's anyone that wants to put their trust in Christ. Let's, uh, let's pray a couple moments on our own right now.
If you're one of the people who've been hurt by the sins of others, just call out to God. He hears your cries. He sees you. He loves you. cares for you. If there's anyone in here who you've been hearing this message, whether it be today or a series of past few weeks, like, you know what, I need the blood of Jesus to not only forgive me, but to purify me, to change me. I can't be the Lord of my own life. I can't control my own lusts. I can't control my own greed. I can't control my own lying. I can't control my own gossiping. can't even control these things in my life. I need help. You look at people who are walking with Jesus now. Those people weren't always like that. Patient, kind, loving. We're all like Cain. We're all like Cain. But God changes. He offers hope for all of us here now. Is anyone here who says, I need Jesus in my life. I haven't put my trust in him. I haven't asked him to come into my life and be my Savior and Lord. If that's you, just where you are, you can just raise your hand. And I'll see you where you are and then you can put your hand down. Thank you. I see you. Thank you. Praise Jesus. Yeah, is there any other people? I need Jesus in my life. Thank you. See you. Thank you. There's a, at least a couple people in here who have responded in this way. The second invitation, there's people in here. I'd imagine this is all of us. It's, de- it's definitely me. But I feel like, you know what? My sin has hurt other people. And even though I'm a child of God, I need help to overcome the sin in my life. And here and now, I'm recommitting my heart to not give God just my outer gifts, but I'm giving him my heart. I want to give my heart to God in worship. I want to deal with the sin in my life before it escalates and gets out of control. That's, and I want to do that. I just want to declare that to the Lord God now. This is me. I'm not going to look at you or pray with you or anything like that, but if that's you and you know that in your heart, just raise your hand where you are. Just let the Lord see it. Just let God see your heart. Just come back to him today. Life is too short and people are too important for us to live in that way. put your hand you can put your hands down just continue to pray just pray God I need your help I need your help so as we pray for those of us in here who want to put our trust in Christ for the first time I'm just going to pray an example prayer and you can pray this prayer or a prayer just like it in your own heart then afterwards, I'm going to pray a prayer of recommitment and rededication for those of us who are already followers of Christ. You can just offer up a similar prayer. But first, for those who want to give their lives to Christ, dear Jesus, thank you so much for loving me, even though I've committed so much sin. Little sins in my life have taken over and have become big sins, and I've hurt people. I've hurt myself, I've hurt innocent people, and I've hurt you. I know that this is not how I'm supposed to live, and I know that change is possible because you love me so much. Thank you for being patient with me and for loving me and demonstrating that love by dying on a cross for me. 
Jesus, thank you that you took my punishment so that I could have the blessing of grace and mercy. You took the justice that I deserve, the death blow, in order that I could live in freedom and now make a difference in the lives of people. I need you to be my Savior and my Lord. Change me from the inside out and help me to be who you want me to be. In Jesus' name, amen. And for those of us who are rededicating our hearts to the Lord, let's pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, thank you for being patient with me also. You have loved me even though I've fallen and run away from you. And though my sins are many, you never gave up on me. Thank you that your love is the only love in this life that will outlast life, that will lead even into death. And on the other side of death, your love will be perfected in me. Thank you for this indestructible and unstoppable love that never fails through the seasons when I'm walking faithfully and when I've been unfaithful. You have never left me because you know that there's so much more that I could have. I give over to you my sin. I surrender it first in repentance and confession, and then I turn away from it. Whatever that sin is in me, I leave it behind at the altar so that I might follow you, Jesus. Be now stronger than my sin. I welcome you to overcome. I welcome you to break the chains. I welcome you to make me the man and the woman of God that you're calling me to be. Thank you so much. I love you because you've loved me first. And so, Father, we um, just ask that you would take these seeds planted in our hearts and you would cause them to grow. That even this week, we would see a difference in our lives. That even this week, our families would see a difference in our lives. And as your word in Hebrews 3 and 4 says, today, as we hear your voice, may we not harden our hearts to you, but may we respond in love, in grace, in sweet surrender. Thank you for loving us, for saving us from our sin and even from ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.